Hello again. As I said before, my name is Phil. I'm the ministry director here at St. Pete's. And in this passage that we're in today, Jesus ultimately comes to this question, this count the cost, estimate the cost. And as Jesus says this, I think he kind of divides the world into two groups of people. There are people who are good at counting the cost of things. They're, they're the preppers and planners. They do the mental math any time a decision is to be made. You're going to buy a t-shirt. They're going to think about how long the life of that t-shirt will last you. Is it worth the $20 or $30 or $50 you're going to spend? And they break it down. Or they weigh the difference between an espresso and an espresso machine. Which one is actually going to cost you more in the long run? And then I think there's the rest of us who don't really think of the costs, or we try to justify the cost after we've purchased a thing, but we don't really do the full thinking of how much a thing is really going to cost us in the long run. And I am definitely in the latter category. And I experienced it to a, 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 a huge point recently in my life that made me realize I need to get a lot better at counting the cost of things. And it came down to my dog, Rafi. This is him behind me. He's just the cutest little thing in the world. So just remember this, this picture first, because he's cute, and I love him, and he's wonderful. But here's the thing. I began doing the math of how much Raf has financially cost me over the past four and a half years. See, Dee and I, we used to live in Mount Pleasant in this beautiful one bed with a den, washer dryer in unit, dishwasher, marble countertops, just an incredible apartment that was a steal of an apartment. But it didn't allow dogs. And so like five years ago, Dee began getting the itch. She wanted a dog. She gave me the itch. I wanted a dog. And we said, we can give up this beautiful apartment that was a gem to find and will never be able to be found again in Vancouver. And so we began looking for months, and we found this place and where our apartment was built in 2015. The apartment we moved into was built somewhere in the early 1900s, I swear, probably 1950s. It still uses glass circuit breakers, like glass tubes that are in the wall that you just have to circle out, like twist out when they explode. But So we moved from one apartment to another, and we lost a lot in the move. We lost washer dryer in unit. We lost a beautiful dishwasher. It was this whole thing. And it cost us like $50 to $100 more a month right off the bat. So before we even get this dog, we're in for like an extra 100 bucks a month, let's say. And then we finally, we have to get a dog. We like search online for some time. But I have dog allergies, so we had to get a bougie hypoallergenic dog instead of a rescue, so it cost a little bit more there. And then we finally get him, and we're like, yes, we spent the $1,000. That's all it's going to cost us. We immediately take him to the vet, and we have to get vaccines and heartworm pills and flea medication and all this sort of stuff. We're in for another $500 right off the bat. Six months into that, we learn Rafi is a true Vancouver hipster dog. He's gluten intolerant. Yes, he cannot process gluten. It's terrible. You give the dog a milk bone, and he's going to have diarrhea for the next three days. It is the worst. So we had to like upgrade to a more expensive dog food. We're in for another 50 extra bucks a month. It just keeps on stacking. But it came, and then in the first like three months of having Rafi, I'm wearing my AirPods. I take one out, put it on the couch. I turn my back, and I look over, and he's just like, just bit a hole through my AirPod. And I like went one AirPod for a full year, and I was like, that's it. Another $200, got to get my AirPods. But then it came to a head this March. So all the costs are justified. He's wonderful. He doesn't really like cuddling with me. He prefers D. But like he's still wonderful to have in the house. And then March came. And suddenly, he's having diarrhea regularly. And we're like, OK, probably just ate some gluten. We're figuring it out, whatever. But then it kept on going. 
So we ended up taking him to the vet one day, two days, three days, and it's just not getting better. And after like a week of taking him to the vet, x-rays, blood work, fecal tests, all this sort of stuff, they find out he has a blockage in his small intestine. And it's going to cost a huge amount to do a surgery to make him survive. And we're standing at the vet after like five sleepless nights, and the vet slides this bill across the table. And I just look at it, and I swear, there were 75 line items of things that I was being charged for. And I looked at the bottom. And I typically have no shame. I'm a very shameless person. I don't want to tell you how much I spent that week on my dog. It was an embarrassing amount. And I just sat, stood there, and I looked at Dee, and I just said, OK, we got to be honest for a second. How much are we willing to spend on this dog? And she looked at me and said, with tears in her eyes, don't you dare ask me that question. <laughs> and, and five years ago, I did not consider the cost of getting a dog. And it was way more than I ever thought. And before I finish, I have to send kids to Kids Church with Colton. I'm sorry. <laughs> Jerry, Abby, you can head out to Kids Church with Colton. But I, I realized I'm so bad at like really thinking how much a thing is going to cost me. And I'm really good at buying something and then justifying the cost in the background. So I, I've been feeling extremely challenged by Jesus in this passage this week. And I hope to take that challenge and pass it over to you. Maybe we all living in Vancouver need to be a little better with considering the cost of things. That's the intro. But, but if you're new to St. Pete's, you're maybe wondering, why are we in the middle of Luke? Let me give a little explanation. We have been traveling, traveling through the Gospel of Luke for over three years now. And over this summer, we were moving from Luke 12 to Luke 14. And from Luke 9 to Luke 14, it's this long section where Jesus is traveling on the road in Jerusalem or to Jerusalem, and he's teaching about what it really means to follow him, what it means to be a disciple. And it's bookended by these two questions at the beginning and end of 9 and 14. And it's, what does it take to follow Jesus? What is it going to cost you to be his disciple? That's where we're at today, and that's the question I want to ask. What does it cost to follow Jesus? Is it worth it? And then finally, a, a little um, ending note on unsalty salt, which seems completely disconnected from what Jesus is saying. But let me pray, and then we'll fully dive in, okay? Father God, we give thanks that you are here and you are with us. We give thanks that grace is free and not something that we could actually pay for because we wouldn't be able to. We give thanks to be a church in the city experiencing and discovering your, your goodness. And I pray that in this sermon, what's of you would rise up and, and come into our ears and fill us with your life, and what is of me would just fall away. Let us learn today what it costs to follow you and wrestle with whether we consider worth it. In your name, amen. So, <clears throat> this passage that we begin in starts off with a, a brief introduction. A crowd is following Jesus on the road. And throughout the Gospel of Luke, you see these refrains again and again, and it just means like scene change. So the, previously, we were at a banquet where there were religious leaders and teachers of the law, and Jesus is dining with them and talking about who's in and who's out and who's included in the kingdom of God. And now it cuts over to this large crowd is following Jesus. And inside this crowd, there may be people that might become disciples of Jesus. And Jesus answers a question that's not asked in the text, but is probably being asked in the crowd. What does it take to follow you? How do we become your disciple? And so Jesus, he answers it in a bit of a surprising way. In verse 25 or 26, he says, If anyone comes to me 
and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brother and sister, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. In order to be my disciple, hate your family and yourself. Welcome to St. Peter's Fireside. It's great to have you here. Welcome to following Jesus. This isn't what you expect from a guy who earlier said, love your neighbor as yourself, pray for those who persecute you, turn the other cheek. The greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself, but your family, family's free game apparently. And if we started teaching this, maybe we would fill up more as a church. People would be like, ooh, low bar for entry. Already halfway there. Hate my family? I can do that. We're all halfway there. Hate myself? That's a little dark. But here we are trying to follow Jesus, and he gives us this, this strange command. So what's going on? Well, this is why my Old Testament prof, you would always say, don't read the Bible literally. Read it literarily. Only then can you understand its literal meaning. And Jesus is, of course, practicing exaggeration and hyperbole. He's using this Greek word, misos, which means hate. And he says, hate your family. But misos often is translated in other places as loveless. It's not hate. It's not vitriol. It's not anger towards. It's a comparative love. You must love me more than you love other people. It's similar to what you do in marriage. You stand up. You make vows. You say, you are my one and only. You are before my family and everyone else. I'm going to love everyone else less than I love you. Dee and I experienced this in our very first week of marriage. We got married, and then we packed up our van, and we left our family. And for years, my mom would be like, do you hate me? Is that why you left? And I was like, no. I just love my wife more than you. And so I choose to flee, the, flee from Ontario and come to beautiful British Columbia. And many of us will experience this in different ways. And so Jesus says, your family, your, your mother and father, your closest relationship, you must love less than me. The family you choose, your wife and your children, the sources of your legacy, you must love them less than me. And then brothers and sisters, it's not just bloodline, it's your fraternities, your religious communities, the people you choose to spend your time with, you must love them less than me. And the big thing there is that is the entire social life of a Jewish person in the first century. It's typically our most of our social life as well, but we would put all those things first. They would, they would work all their life to honor their family, to honor their spouse and their children, and to honor the people around them. And Jesus is saying, instead of listening to them, instead of putting them first, I come first. So just an easy bar of entry. And then he tops it up, and this I think is really for us in the West, us in the modern day, hate yourself. Love yourself less than me. And I think in the West, where we've kind of moved from focus on the family to focus on career, on job, on personal fulfillment, on living out our hopes and dreams, that challenge is even bigger than loving your family less. And I think, yeah, especially in Vancouver, where we moved out here, many of us, to pursue education or to pursue some new experience or to pursue a career, that invitation to love yourself less is quite a challenge. And so, just an easy bar of entry. Love everything else less than me. Put everything else less than me. As Augustine puts it, you have to reorder your loves. And now, everything is focused on Jesus. And if that was not hard enough, then Jesus follows it up with the statement, and in order to follow me, you must carry your cross. And I think we hear this today, and we hear it through the lens of 2,000 years of Christianity, where the cross is victory and forgiveness. 
That is not the cross that Jesus was talking about. In the first century, to talk about a cross is horrifying. We need to remember that the cross was a symbol of death, of enslavement, of humiliation, of defeat. Crosses were saved for criminals and insurrectionists and slaves. And it was designed to be the cruelest form of punishment known to man at the time. It was a public form of torture meant to carry pain out over a long period of time in a public way. I learned this week that the, the word excruciating, coming from the Latin word to torment, literally means out of the cross, ex crux. To feel something that, that is excruciatingly painful means to the thing is like getting your hands and feet nailed to wooden beam, hoisted up and left there for maybe two or three days to die a horrible death in front of people. That's excruciating. So be careful next time you use it. But Jesus says, in order to follow me, you must carry your cross. This public form of humiliation. And we have to pause here again. How literal is Jesus being? Well, in chapter 9, Jesus says, you must deny yourselves and carry your cross daily. So we know that it's not a real death that Jesus is necessarily calling us to. It's not martyrdom. It's not self-harm. It's following him. And for some people, their cross might be that. It might be martyrdom. It might be death. But it is a metaphorical death and dying that he's calling us to. So what does it take to be his disciple? Well, reorder your loves and then take all your hopes and dreams and your desires and nail them to a cross. Because that's not what you're living for anymore when it comes to following Jesus. That's where he's calling us to. That's where he's leading us to. The German theologian bon, Dietrich Bonhoeffer had said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Quite a challenging place to start, quite an uplifting place to begin a sermon. They're sobering, challenging words of Jesus. Count the cost. And so Jesus tells these two stories. He, he highlights the high bar of entry, and so then he tells these two stories about a man who wanted to build a tower but wouldn't have enough to pay for it, and a king who wanted to go to war and said, consider the cost. If you don't have enough, don't go for it. Maybe to the modern day, he would say, before you buy a dog, consider the cost because you don't want to be staring at a vet bill you can't pay. Count the cost before you go in. Sit down, add it all up, get out the legal pad, get out the calculator, or, or in that day, the abacus, and say, do I have what it takes? Do I have what it takes? Because it will cost you Everything. And before Jesus can even let people finish, in verse 33, he just says it outright. He says, in order to be my disciple, it will cost you everything. And I've been reflecting on these words because it, it feels crazy to come up here and say this, right? And I've been trying to reflect in my own life, what does it cost to be a Christian today? And I've broken it down to, I think, four things we all share that it costs us to be Christians or to follow Jesus, but many others of us will experience different costs. So let me just highlight four simple things that I see as costs that we incur. The first is time. Being a Christian will cost you time. If you really want to be involved in the life of a community and follow Jesus, you're going to plug into a local church on Sundays and maybe spend one to two hours a week on a Sunday. Maybe you'll join in a community group and spend two to three hours a week 
with a community group. Maybe you'll serve in a soup kitchen or a place around the city, and you'll dedicate some of that time to Jesus. Maybe you'll be praying in morning and evening prayer and reading scripture. Let's put it like, let's be generous. Let's give it five hours a week, kind of low bar. Maybe two on the odd week, maybe seven on the high week, but let's just say five hours a week to be a Christian. That may sound okay for one week, but count that up over a year. Suddenly you're at 300 plus hours over a lifetime, thousands of hours. And in a world where time is commodified so much, where time is so important, we could be doing so many other things. Like, if, you were, if it was a Sunday morning and you weren't at church, well, you could be having brunch at Jam Cafe. You could be hanging out with friends. You could just be sleeping in and not being here and getting time back for yourself in a busy schedule. Or you could be working and making more money trying to afford living in Vancouver. It costs a lot of time to be following Jesus. And we don't get that time back in the same way. We dedicate it to following Jesus. And it costs you money. Follow Jesus long enough, read scripture long enough, and you'll start seeing this call to radical generosity. The Old Testament, it talks about tithing, but then you don't see tithing brought up in the New Testament because it actually calls for more radical generosity. Follow Jesus long enough, and you'll start feeling this pull to your wallet and your bank account. 10% or more begins to go to the church and to Jesus. Money that we could be spending to pay for our apartment or our vet bills or for joy and pleasure and so many different things. Following Jesus will cost money in the long run. And then social status. I think this is one that we're feeling more and more here in the West. If you follow Jesus, you're lumping yourself with Christians around the world. And many of us don't want to be lumped with people that identify themselves as Christians, that disagree with our views on sexuality or politics or finances. We don't like the expression of other Christians, and, and we're worried to be lumped in that same category. When I used to work at Cactus, and I would tell coworkers, oh, I'm a Christian, I would notice this, like, just a, a look. And what I learned that look was over time was the thought was, oh, are you a racist, homophobic, sexist bigot that's going to judge me in my way of life? Because that's what I'm seeing Christians do, and are you one of those people? And my social status would just be affected immediately. And it was hard calling myself a Christian when I was seeing what was going on around the world. During the pandemic, it was brutal watching churches respond in different ways and saying, I call myself brothers and sisters with them. We believe in the same creator and savior of the universe. We believe that Christ died for our sins, but I'm not liking the way they're living. And now I'm connected to them. And I think the last thing that we kind of all share is, is being a Christian costs you your pride. You can't have pride live long as you're a Christian. You're called to forgiveness, to humbling yourself to people around you, to putting other people first instead of yourself. So there's costs with following Jesus. And Jesus says, sit down, add it up. Do you have what it takes? Is it worth it? And I think we really need to pause and, and reflect on how important it is that Jesus says, don't take it lightly. Because I think the evangelical church today and throughout kind of my lifetime, it didn't want us to consider the costs. It tried to work us up into emotional frenzies to get us to convert. And then suddenly, 10 years later, you're halfway down, and you're saying, I'm bitter, I'm frustrated, I'm angry, this isn't what I signed up for. They didn't tell me about the costs of following Jesus. 
And so we have this invitation from Jesus, count the cost. And it's so important to see, Jesus is not like a smiley, slimy, smarmy swindler. He's not, like a, he's not a used car salesman saying, like, don't look under the hood, just look at the low price. He says, open it up. Take a full look at what's going on here. Do you really want this? Because it comes with a cost to follow him. And I realize how crazy it is to stand up here and say this. Because I know I don't live this way always. I struggle and fail at this all the time. And so I'm not calling you to be like me. I'm calling us to what Jesus is pointing us to, and it's really hard and challenging. But as I've been reflecting on it this week, one of the big things that I came to realize as I was reading through this and researching is, I think actually everything in life that is of worth and value calls to those same sacrifices. Everything in life is asking for your time, your money, your focus, your energy, and yourself. If you want to succeed in work, in school, in social play with friends, if you want to have kids and a family, it's going to ask you to sacrifice again and again. Let's just, just think of, for a moment, be, trying to become a doctor. There is actually a few doctors in this room, which is incredible. But to become a doctor first costs you time. At least 10 years of education after high school, dedicated to education. And it's not like high school education where half of us weren't working very well. It's like intense, focused studying, tens of thousands of hours over the course of those 10 years. And then it costs you money, just tuition in general, or not making as much money as your friends around you are because you're just paying to go to school. And where other people are going and working and making money, you're just like sinking into debt over the course of those 10 years. And then it costs you social status because you're not with your friends and your family. You're not celebrating birthdays. You're doing late nights and early mornings and sleepless nights in general, all trying to earn something, all trying to pursue something that promises a reward of, of helping people and a great paycheck. And then at the end, you work more. Or being a parent, right? Like there's this joy of having a child, and then all that time is dedicated to a child. All your money suddenly goes to this heart that is living outside of you. The social status erupts a little bit as you're walking around with puke on your shirt. Anything in life that really promises value will call you to sacrifice. Your time, your money, your energy, your hopes, and your dreams. And at least Jesus is honest about what it's going to take to follow him. He doesn't try to lie to us. He just says, like everything else in life, this is going to cost you. And so the question is, does he give a reward that other things don't? Nothing in life is free. That's pretty tough, eh? It was like a horrible realization for me this week when I was trying to like say, oh, Jesus' call is too much. And I said, how many other things in life have I just dedicated my life to? How many things have I said no to in order to say yes to other things? Everything in life comes with a cost. Nothing in life is free that has great worth, typically. And following anything asks you to reorder your loves. But here's the thing. In this sermon, so far, this hasn't felt like much gospel, right? Doesn't seem to be very much good news. Okay, Phil, you've called me to come and sacrifice my life for Jesus. I thought, 
Love was free. I thought grace was a free gift. And it is. So I want to talk about the gospel in this text. Because I actually see it in a number of amazing places. So I want to highlight three things. The cross, the worth, and the salt. Okay? The cross, the worth, and the salt. So the very first hint of the gospel that we see is in the words, carry their cross. Jesus does not say, in order to follow me, you must carry my cross. You must carry the cross that everyone else carries. No, he says you must carry your cross. Because Jesus carried his cross. And Jesus carried a cross that none of us could carry of death, of rejection, of forgiveness, of separation for God, from God. And he carried a cross that we should have carried that would have destroyed us. And so Jesus is very clear. Don't carry my cross, which is a thing many of us try to do as we earn salvation. We say, well, I can carry the cross. I'm enough. But Jesus says, no, no, don't carry my cross. I died that death. In response, we carry much smaller crosses that we can actually carry. Our pride, our shame, learning to forgive other people, sacrificing of our time and energy. We carry much smaller crosses that are fulfilled in Jesus' cross. And many other religions, they'll call us all to the same cross, all to the same burden. But Christianity actually does not do that. So there's this gift, come to Jesus' cross, put your cross there, and he'll carry it, and then carry just a small cross instead. So there's good news there. We don't carry Jesus' cross, we carry our cross. And the second part with the cross, though, is that through Jesus' cross, we learn that death leads to resurrection. So as we die to our family, as we die to ourselves, as we die to our hopes, our dreams, our longings, We come alive to new things. As you die to your family, you come alive to a larger family than you ever would have had. Everyone in this room, if they identify themselves as brothers and sisters in Christ, are your brothers and sisters. This church and churches across the world, Jesus at one point is asked, asked, oh, your mother and brothers are outside. And he says, who is my mother? Who is my brother? These are my brothers and sisters. As we die to our family, we come alive to a new and larger family. As you die to your hopes and dreams, you come alive to hopes and dreams born from the very heart of God. And so, yes, there are things that we'll die to, but also things that we'll come alive to in resurrection and that we get back in a way we never thought possible. As we die to our money and we spread it out and we give it to the Lord, it comes alive in new ways that it never would have with us. So first, the cross is very good news in that text. Would you not agree? And the second thing is the cost. So the second place that we see the gospel come up is in counting the cost. Because in order to count the cost, we don't just say, do I have what it takes in me? We say, is it worth it? Is it worth it to follow Jesus? Because the value of something, the cost of something, only matters based on the value of what you get in the end. A can of Coke might be valued at $1, and so it would be too expensive for $200. But if you only spent $200 on an apartment in Vancouver, well, that's a steal, right? The cost can only be valued when you know the worth of the thing that is attained. And what do you get for following Jesus? According to Scripture, you get Jesus. You get to call him friend and Lord and King. As we follow him as disciples, we actually get to be with him. And I love what Paul writes to the church in Philippi 
in Philippians 3, he says this, Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, rubbish that I may gain Christ. In order to really understand the cost, we must first look at the value. And what Paul says is if you hold anything up beside Jesus, it just looks worthless. All those things that we chase after and pursue in life held beside the shining glory of Jesus look like nothing but shadows. And so as we consider the cost, we ask the question, is it worth it to come to Jesus? And what do we get in return? Will we get to be with him There's this fantastic book I read years ago called Love Will Always Be a Poor Investment. Love Will Always Be a Poor Investment. And I think those words changed my life and how I think about marriage and relationships because in the end, I will sacrifice all these things in marriage, but I just get to be with my spouse. I can pay tens of thousands of dollars, not that it was that, for my dog, but I get to be with my dog, the joy and the celebration of with him. And that pales in comparison to being with Christ. There's this quote from Bonhoeffer in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, which I just wanted to basically read ad hoc the entire service because it's incredible. But he writes this. Is it costly? It is costly because it calls to discipleship. It is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs people their lives. It is grace because thereby it makes them live. It is costly because it condemns sin, but it is grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, grace is costly because it it was costly to God. Because it cost God the life of God's son, you were bought with a price. And because nothing can be cheap to us, which is costly to God. Above all, it is grace, because the life of God's Son was not too costly for God to give in order to make us live. It will cost us everything in life to follow Jesus. But it cost Jesus his own life to make that happen. And by that, we live. By that, we come and experience his presence and grace in our life. So that's the cost and the worth And then Jesus ends in the oddest place, right? He gives this big thing, and then he says, let's talk about salt for a moment. And he says, salt that has lost its saltiness has no worth and should be thrown out. Can salt be made salty again? And I think I read that and had no idea what he was talking about for some time. And I poured through commentaries trying to figure out what was going on. And so many people began talking about the science of salt in the first century Israel and how like salt actually could lose its saltiness because they would get salt from the Dead Sea, but it was impure. So through evaporation and humidity and time, it would literally lose its flavor and purpose as the salt inside the husk would like evaporate and not be there. So you just have this like stuff that looks like salt but is useless. And I was like, okay, cool. What does that mean? So then I kept on looking, and I I found this great, I was like, can salt 
that lost its saltiness be made salty again. And I found a teaching from a first century rabbi writing about the Talmud who was asked the question, can salt be made salty again? And he had this incredible response. He said, how can you make unsalty salt again? He said, by salting it with the afterbirth of a mule. Now, you may not know about mules, but mules are an animal animal that cannot procreate. They can't have children. They can't have an afterbirth. So his answer, he could have just said, no, it's not possible, but, you know, classic Jewish proverb. So can salt be made salty again? Well, no, because we don't have any afterbirth of a mule. And again, I was left with this question, what are you talking about, Jesus? Why are you saying this? But as I reflected on it and, and Asking this question, he says, he who has ears, let him hear. And I thought, I don't have ears. Please, God, let me hear. But then I began to think about all the things in life that take away our flavor and our purpose. As we live, we will begin to sacrifice our life for many different things. And it will take from us. It won't give us things in return that it it promises. And sometimes we can end up feeling like an empty husk. We're not living into what we are called for. Life has no flavor. It's overwhelmed with these things that I've sacrificed for. And I think the thing that Jesus is saying is much of the time in life you may feel like an empty husk of salt. You have no purpose and meaning. You sacrificed for everything and now you have nothing to show for it. And he asked this question, can unsalty salt be made salty again? And I think his answer would be this. Unsalty salt can only be made salty by someone who can bring life back to a dead body. That's the call here. Only God can make life return. And if you've found that you've sacrificed your life, if you feel like an empty husk, you can't do anything to fill yourself up. All you can do is come to Jesus, the Lord, the giver of life, and he will give you new life. He will fill you up with purpose and joy and flavor once again. And then he will say, and now you can live that life dedicated to me. A few years ago, before I was working here at St. Pete's, I'd been working in restaurants for almost nine years. And life was starting to feel pretty purposeless. Running burger to table 36, table 37, table 42. And yes, I was making good money. I was chasing promotions. I was working hard, but life began to feel rather flavorless. And I just began praying, like, God, I feel empty after all this stuff that I've chased. Fill me up again. Give me new life. And I think we can all come to Jesus like that. Jesus, I need the life only you give. Everything else in life will promise us great rewards. But in the end, we'll ask for sacrifices it cannot pay for. But Jesus says, let me fill you up instead. And then you can live that life to me. And as a church, as we move into a new year ahead of us, a new school term, my hope is that we can just continue asking this question, is it worth it to follow Jesus? And I think week in and week in, week in and week out, we'll we'll come to this answer. Yes, because we get to be with Jesus, because we get to experience his goodness. As a church where we exist to discover God's goodness and then share that goodness with the world around us. And I hope that's where we can go. But if you feel empty if you feel life has last box, lack, bleh, if you feel life is lacking flavor, come to Jesus, and He will make you salty once again. Let me pray.